Well, if you would turn to Acts chapter 24. This is, we're breaking into the middle of an account here of Paul in trouble with uh, the Jewish people, and because of that he was in prison, in custody with the Romans. And the particular Roman that he was dealing with here was Felix. So we'll just break in at verse 24 of chapter 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Priscilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. We'll stop there, but just let me say that they kept him in prison for years. And uh, Felix never did find time. So that's a caution to us right there. Putting off things when God's speaking to us is a big mistake. And we're also told that Felix uh, was expecting to get some kind of a bribe from him. That's one of the reasons he listened to him. And there can be some pretty strange ulterior motives for people listening to the Word of God. But unless you're wanting the truth and have a love of the truth... It's not going to be good. And it wasn't good for Felix. Well, I actually want to speak with you on the subject of self-control, biblical self-control. But uh, this is the first mention of self-control in the New Testament, so it's a good one to just take as a starting point. Let me just say something else concerning this account. There's just things that come to mind as I was reading this. Here was Paul in a situation uh, of being in prison and uh, having the opportunity to speak to the person that was keeping him in prison. And I'm sure there would have been the temptation to try to say something that was pleasing. You know, this guy's the one keeping me in custody here. Maybe I can get in good favor. What did Paul do? He spoke to him about the things he needed to hear, and he knew were problems. And that's a lot different than what happens a lot of times when religious people speak before the leaders in our country. They say the things, they pray the things that ruffles, will ruffle no feathers. That's not Paul's manner. It shouldn't be ours either. It's not easy to do what Paul did here, though. He spoke exactly into the things that were the needs of this person and his wife. We're told that this Felix was a person who reveled in cruelty and lust. That's from a Roman historian, Tacitus. I always like finding something that you can take from what you might call secular history and see, yeah, that fits exactly with what was going on here. We know this guy was a crook. He was keeping Paul having him come to speak, thinking he'd get some kind of a bribe from him. 
but he was much more than just a crook. He reveled in cruelty and lust. And this woman that was his wife was actually his third wife, and uh, he pulled her away from somebody else she was already married to, and so it was a mess. And Paul speaks into that situation, and what does he speak about? He speaks about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, <clears throat> which actually, if you think about it, are some pretty good things if we're witnessing to somebody today. Those are three pretty good things to remember in our, in our present-day culture, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So there's some clues there on how to witness, um, maybe not how, to, not how to win friends and influence people, but how to witness. <clears throat> anyway, that's just uh, a little bit from the, the section here. But what I really want to deal with is biblical self-control. <clears throat> you know, we just don't talk much about self-control. And one of the reasons I think it is is that we think it's kind of like a worldly, worldly thing. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. <clears throat> because the world sometimes does talk about self-control and the need for it. Even in our self-indulgent age, you'll hear something. In fact, if you look it up on the Internet, you'll see all kinds of stuff about self-control. It won't be biblical self-control, but it, it'll be some things that uh, the world views as self-control. Anyway, I thought maybe to get us going on this, two scriptures from the Old Testament would be appropriate. So let's turn to Proverbs. There's actually quite a bit in Proverbs about self-control. <clears throat> but uh, we'll just look at a couple here. Proverbs 25, 28. Both of these used the picture of a city. Now, you've got to remember back then, one important part of a city was its walls. Okay? I mean, a city was what you went into for protection, and the reason there would be protection in the city partly was because of its walls. So, <clears throat> Solomon says here, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control of his spirit. He doesn't have self-control. Now, what's, what's the picture here? He says, if you don't have self-control, you'd be just like a, a city without walls. It can be broken into. In other words, there's no protection there. So what he's saying is, if you do not have control of your spirit, if you do not have self-control, you are going to be vulnerable to the enemy. Now, what's that mean to us? Well, uh, back then, of course, it, had, it was thinking of actual enemies of of the people in the city. But our situation has to do with the enemies of our soul, the enemies to the Christian, which are the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you do not have self-control, those things are going to take over. Right. So th I think that's the picture that we're supposed to get from this in, in New Testament terms. We're all surrounded every day by temptations from the world and the flesh and the devil. And without self-control, if we have no control over our, our, ourselves, we will be conquered. There's enemies there that, that we're totally uh, vulnerable to. We will, without self-control, we'll become slaves to our great enemies. 
unable to do what we should do, which is to love God and to love other people. We'll only be serving our own selfish desires, a slave to self and Satan. So that's the the first picture I think we should come up with. I I would say this on the positive side. If we have self-control, those very things become opportunities to demonstrate what the Christian life is all about, to demonstrate that we don't, don't have to fall into those things, to demonstrate that to a self-indulgent age. I mean, that, uh, that's what, what we live in. And if we have self-control, we'll show that it's possible not to live like that. So we can view it in a positive, uh, from the positive side, too, because we're living in such an out-of-control, overindulgent society. God is giving us a great opportunity to demonstrate Christ's character in that situation. And that will come by exercising this area of self-control. So, that's the one verse. Let's turn then to Proverbs 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So here again you have this city picture, but this is more in a positive light here. If you're slow to anger, you're better than the mighty, and he who rules over his spirit has self-control. He who rules over his spirit than he who captures a city. So... What's he saying here? Well, again, if we put it in New Testament terms, the writer is saying that with self-control, you are demonstrating something much greater than any military leader ever had just because he was able to conquer a city. uh, In God's eyes, the way God views things, if he was writing a history of the great victories in this world... It would have to do with the victories in relationship to self-control, not conquering some city. Think about this. I mean, really, is it it really true that a Christian who is exercising self-control is greater than Alexander the Great? Yes, it is true. That's what that says. It says, um, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. That's what he's saying. So, self-control is a great thing in God's eyes. Biblical self-control. So now we need to kind of clear up what we're talking about. We're talking about something God-given, not man-made. Not man's attempts at self-mastery or self-denial. Like I said, if you you just type in self-control and look... Look up under the internet, you get a, a bunch of stuff <clears throat> related to yoga and uh, psychology, how you deal with you know, yourself and that kind of stuff. It's not what the Bible's talking about. Those things can give an appearance of self-control, but actually promote self-indulgence. So let me just go off here on a few things that are not biblical self-control. <clears throat> 
especially in the culture back here in the Greeks and Romans. There were certain things that would have come to mind if uh, you started speaking about self-control. And I'm sure Paul made this clear when he was speaking to Felix that this is not what he's talking about because he's speaking to him about Jesus Christ and the gospel. But here's some of the things that would have been uh, coming to mind in that culture. For instance, the Greeks prized a certain form, certain forms of self-control. Back in the time, three or four hundred years before Christ, you had these people, the Spartans, okay? And they they lived in the uh, city of Sparta in (laughs) southern Greece. And they were noted for their self-discipline related to the military life. And they were famous for this. In fact, we even still talk about the Spartan way of living. They would take their the young boys at the age of seven, and they were actually taken from their parents and began a military training that was very difficult, very rigorous, which emphasized uh, courage and perseverance in extreme uh, physical difficulties and toughness and endurance. So uh, that's, you know, true, there's a form of self-control involved there, and a denial of self in certain areas uh, that helps them help them learn to face danger and difficulty. But that is a very small part of what we're talking about here. In fact, we've already seen that uh, he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. And those Spartans could capture a city, and a lot of them couldn't rule their own spirit, you see. So we're talking about something different than that. And then... Later on in Greek philosophy, you had a group called the the Stoics. And we talk about Stoicism and a person being Stoic. Well, they advocated a calm resignation, a resigned acceptance of whatever comes to pass, kind of a case, sarah, sarah type thing in a mild form. Theirs was more extreme than that. A, uh, A stern suppression of all emotion. That was viewed as a form of, you know, self-discipline, self-control. But we're, we're talking something much more than that. Unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians kind of try to adopt that philosophy and have kind of a Christian stoicism, which is not Christian. It's just mostly stoicism. If we think, if we take this attitude, because I can accept whatever comes pain or persecution or illness or poverty. It's just all the same to me. God's doing it, so it doesn't matter. And we're not moved by any emotion, whether it's sadness or happiness or disappointment or relation. Well, that's just, that's just uh, Christian uh, way of dealing with things. That's not, that's not Christianity. We've got to get these things clear that this is not what we're talking about. You can go on and talk about uh, asceticism, extreme forms of self-denial, or you can talk about legalism, which, again, gives, uh, often gives the appearance of a form of self-control. The Pharisees had the appearance of a form of self-control. What you really had there was a self-righteous self-control, control, and it was self-promoting. So it's not, it never was, and can't possibly be 
what we're talking about when we're talking about biblical self-control. I guess I'd put it this way. All these forms of self-control and probably a bunch of other ones are actually just the flesh overcoming some aspects of the flesh. Which what leaves you with what? The flesh. <laughs> which is what has to be dealt with if you have biblical self-control. So it's not what we're talking about. Uh, it certainly does not please God and will ultimately promote pride. So that's not what we're talking about. But what areas are we dealing with when we're dealing with biblical self-control? Well, it goes off into all kinds of areas. Let me just mention a few when we're talking about uh, fleshly desires and impulses. We could be talking about gluttony, for instance. That's a form of a lack of self-control. We could be talking about alcoholism. Be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Makes a contrast there. Don't be controlled with wine. Be controlled with the Holy Spirit. There's a clue right there what biblical self-control is all about. It's being controlled by the Spirit. So any addiction, gambling, drugs, all that kind of stuff. So that's one area, one big area that's brought out uh, very often, both in Proverbs and in the New Testament, are are the areas of of lust and sexual sin, a big area where you have to exercise self-control, biblical self-control, if you're going to have any hope of living the Christian life. Here's a really big one, the tongue, the tongue. Our speech, a massive area where self-control has to be exercised. In fact, James says, if you don't know how to do it there, you, you're wrong in every area. Uh, let's, let's read it because he does such a good job of this. Uh, James <clears throat> chapter 1. He says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious, uh, verse 26, chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, what's it mean to bridle the tongue? It means to control the tongue. You bridle it. Self-exercise and control in this area. If you think you're religious and don't bridle your tongue, he deceives his own heart, and this man's religion is not too much good. (laughs) It's worthless. It's absolutely, he says, the whole thing is worthless. If you're not dealing with it in this area, forget it. That's what he says, it's worthless. And then he goes on to say later on, and this is, I think, incredible and uh, very sobering. Uh, he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you shall incur a stricter judgment. Now, why, why is that? Well, I think he answers it. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, now he's zeroing in on what he says, he's a perfect man. Well, I see a preacher, a pastor, uh, a teacher says a lot. You're inclined to say a lot more to a lot of people about how they should live if you're a preacher or a pastor. And so you have a special 
but a special need for extra grace if you're going to be in that position because we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body. In other words, he's saying, if you can get it right here in this area of bridling your tongue, you can bridle the whole body. You're you're going to have it. It's because they all work together. In this area of self-control, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Not, Not the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Well, self-control is at the end. Does that mean it's the least important? No, because they all work together. If you get if you get self-control in the area of your tongue, you'll have it in the other areas of your life, and those other things will be there too. You don't get one without the other. If you're able, if you don't stumble in what you say, if you if you can bridle the tongue properly. You're a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, I got off off on the tongue there, but there's a lot in the Bible about it. So <clears throat> I better stop, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, one that flows from that, and it's often brought out in the Scriptures, just this area of anger, because often anger comes out through the tongue but it doesn't just have to I mean you can come out just on your face nevertheless it's a big area of self-control in our in our work self-control is important because you can go to extremes there either one if you don't have self-control you can be lazy what's laziness it's a lack of self-control on the other hand you can be a workaholic what's that that's a lack of self-control you see, these things, these things come out in all areas of our lives, and that's what I, I'm just trying to bring out here. There's so many aspects of this. Actually, the deeds of the flesh given to us in Galatians, let's turn to that, chapter 5. Most all of those have to do with self-control. <clears throat> now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, what's that? Lack of self-control. Impurity, what's that? Lack of self-control. Sensuality, lack of self-control. I really think even idolatry can be put into that category. Because, for instance, Paul calls covetousness and greed a form of idolatry. Well, what are covetousness and greed? Lack of self-control. So there's a tie-in between idolatry. Uh, sorcery, enmities, 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 obviously, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. See how many of those deal with self-control? Well, it goes off into so many areas. And so it should make us really desire how, how do I have biblical self-control? Well, that's what I want to say just a few words on here. The fact is that God has provided for this in the atonement and through the work of Christ. And that's the only way you're going to have biblical self-control. It's not through some self-help program. So I want to talk a little about how 
that comes about in the Christian life. But one thing I would say is that when we meet someone that is really an example in this area, what, what we're seeing is someone who has formed habits through repeated, repeated use of self-control, so much so that it's just obvious that this is a way of life to this person. Okay? If you know someone like that, I can think of someone right now, you probably would be thinking of him too, who has, went to be with the Lord not too long ago. You see his life and you think, well, it looks like that just comes kind of natural to him. It's just kind of part of his life. Well, the reason that is, is because he has exercised self-control on a consistent basis and it has become a way of life to him. It ha- he has formed habits in that area. You know, we can, we can have either bad habits or good habits. And those come by way of what we do over and over. So I wanted to say a little bit. This, I'm kind of going off on a little area here of, of uh, dealing with habits, but I just thought they, they, this comes into the uh, focus here as we talk about self-control, so I thought I'd deal with it. Good habits are formed by consistent exercise of biblical self-control. Repeatedly using self-control in areas form habits in that area. If you discipline yourself to choose the right thing and you uh, use self-control, you will form a habit. This means that once you have formed a habit, then it will be easier for you to choose the right thing in that area. I mean, you look at somebody like that and it looks like it just kind of comes... Naturally, well, it doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally, but it's come because of exercising self-control consistently and asking God to make this a reality, a daily reality in their life. So what what I'm saying here is uh, if you meet a Christian who's formed good habits through self-control in certain areas, it seems like that's just part of their nature. Well, it's not, and it's part of their new nature, but it wasn't part of the way God, the way they were born. It was the way God rebirthed them. <clears throat> uh, we're not born with good habits. <laughs> we're born with a propensity towards bad habits, and as as a, even as a parent, you have to start dealing with that. Uh, or if you let that propensity build upon itself, the child will have an incredible amount of bad habits that will be uh, overwhelming and detrimental, devastating, bringing death uh, to that child. One person said it this way in relationship to to habits, especially good habits. After we weave them, we can wear them and people will see them but it doesn't come automatically. We weave them, then we wear them. Now, there's a reason that the person that wrote that uh, quote you chose that picture of clo- clothing. You weave, you weave them, and you wear them. Actually, this was June Hunt, and uh, she says, your habits can be rags of self-centered addictions or robes 
of Christ-centered self-control. Your habits can be the rags of self-centered addictions or the robes of Christ-centered self-control. We're told that we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. If you make provision for the flesh, you build bad habits. If you put on Christ, you build good habits. And you're going to do one or the other. As we daily put on Christ, we form good habits. As we indulge the flesh or make provision for the flesh, we put on bad habits. Now, I want to show you a picture, if I borrow it here, because this is something you don't usually think about. But this is a Catholic nun or someone who's dressed someone like a Catholic nun. <laughs> this lady actually has more lipstick on than I think a Catholic nun. <laughs> but what I want to ask you is what do we call this that she wears? That's her habit. Isn't that incredible? That's her habit. Now, we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And people should recognize in us our habit. Not some external clothing. I'm not talking about that. Don't anyone go away thinking I want you to dress like that. (laughs) What I want you to do is put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to be your habit, you see. And if that's the case, people can tell a difference. Why does she wear that? Because she wants people to know that she is of a certain religious persuasion. Well, you don't have to wear that. What you do have to do and what you... The only way you can really testify to Christ is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look up habit in a dictionary, in a lot of dictionaries, the first definition you'll get is something like this. The type of clothing that is characteristic of a certain rank, of a certain calling, rank, or function. Okay? So I I think that's an incredible... Uh, correlation and something we can get a hold of here in terms of of this thing of habit. Our habit as Christian is not a certain type of external covering, but it should be the character of Christ. (coughs) Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Make no provision for the flesh. Habits are learned behaviors that become powerful forces in our, in our lives for good or for bad. Every habit is either Christ-centered or self-centered. Think about that. Every habit is either Christ-centered or self-centered. Your habits characterize your character. If you're a Christian, your calling is to be clothed 
in Christ, to be clothed, you might say, in the habit of Christ, with the result, with the result that your character actually reflects his character. So, that's just some practicing biblical self-control produces habits that will show the character of Christ to the world, which is what we want to do. I mean, that should be our desire as a Christian. So, some practical points then on this thing of how, what, what, what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have biblical self-control? <clears throat> well, on the negative side, where we lack self-control and have formed bad habits, we must get out of denial and admit we've got a problem. You've got to start there. Even AA, dealing with alcohol, and they've got that right. The step number one is I am an alcoholic. I have got a problem. If you don't start there, you're not going to get anywhere. Now, we're dealing with the negative, but we've got to deal with the negative first. Stop making excuses. You know, this is just my personality. Well, you, you say, well, I was born that way. Yep, you were born that way. <laughs> and so was everybody else. But that's no excuse. God doesn't let you off the hook just because you're born a sinner. Well, you know, I was raised that way. Um, you know, actually, it's society's fault. No, you've got to face the truth. Not only do you have a problem, but you're responsible for that problem. You're responsible. The Bible's clear on that. You don't get off the hook. Well, I was born in sin. Yep, and you're responsible for sinning. You've got to face the truth. Not only that you have a problem, but you're responsible. And right along with that, you cannot... Allow yourself to wallow around in self-pity. Feeling sorry for yourself. Woe is me, I've got a problem. You've got a problem. You're responsible for it. And you know what? God tells you to repent. Well, that's the negative side. Now I want to tell you the positive side. As a Christian... We're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? That's a daily thing. That was spoken to Christians. That doesn't mean become a Christian. That means be a Christian and be who you are, which is putting daily, daily putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means to learn to trust what the Bible says is true about you. What's the Bible say is true about you? The Bible says that you now live in a new realm. If you've repented, if you've put your faith in the Christ Jesus, you now live in a new realm. That's what the Bible says. Now, you're either going to believe that and be changed, or you're not going to believe it and not be changed. You live in a new realm, which is the kingdom of God's beloved Son. You've been transferred. You didn't do it. God did it. He put you in a new realm. That's what the Bible says about you. Okay? And... Not only that, he says, the Bible says, that 
we can put to death the deeds of the flesh because we're new creation. If you through the Spirit do put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. In other words, what we're talking about in biblical self-control is the Spirit actually doing the things that need to be done for you so that you can please God. Does that mean you're passive in it? Nope. You're 100% involved in it. You, you, you will strive to the uttermost to do this or you won't get it done. Well, that's you doing it. No, that's God doing it. Paul talks about how he strove and, and labored. And then he says, but not I, the grace of God within me. But did he strive? He did strive. Did he labor? He did labor. By the grace of God in him. That's what was going on. <clears throat> Putting to de death the deeds of the flesh. Why? Because you are a new creation, you see. Not to become a new creation, but because you are. It's, it's this thing of being what you are and believing what you are. <clears throat> so we need daily, by the grace of God, to strive to be the best representative of Christ that we can possibly be. Is that, is that unbiblical? No, no, that's very biblical. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about agonizing. Well, then it's me. No, it is not you. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. It's what God does with a Christian. But he does it with the Christian, not without the Christian. So, we need daily, by the grace of God, to embrace the realities that the Word of God tells us about ourselves. We need to daily ask for a renewing of our minds, daily, because we think wrong. But God's purpose to make us think right. And so we ask him to renew our minds. I put it this way. I think this is kind of the way I try to sum it up. Motivated by the matchless grace of God and the love he's shown us in Christ and empowered by the Spirit, we can daily deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can do that by the grace of God because we're now in union with Christ, empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we have access to the transforming ministry of God's Word. And I want, uh, again, I want to stress that. As we read God's Word, there's more going on there than the, than the brain taking words into the mind. The Word of God changes us. There's power. There's power there. 
not in just the, the black and white print, but in the truth that's contained in the Word of God. When our affections are focused on our Savior and the eternal realities of His kingdom that are presented to us in His Word, we have the capacity for biblical self-control. And the habits will be formed, and habits will be formed which will display the character of Christ to a self-indulgent and undisciplined world. Biblical self-control is putting on Christ and making no provision for the flesh. Biblical self-control is a control of the Spirit, which is now indwelt and empowering every true believer. And a true believer is one who believes these things that are told us about ourselves in Christ. So the truth and the Spirit working together bring about biblical self-control. I'm going to stop there, and I'm thankful that I didn't cough. (laughs) 